Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome on board the bus, the big red bus with the blue seat covers, the lava lamp and the little tiki hanging from the overhead mirror. Nice to have you on board. If you're new to the show, what do we do? We just find people we find interesting in all scopes of our world, in and out of work. People we think have got their mojo working with stuff that we can steal, plagiarize, say it's our own, put it into our world to get our mojo working. If you're a long-time listener, we love having you on board. Thanks again for hitting the download button. And I got to say, folks, we don't get anything for doing this show. We've been doing it now for approaching five-odd years. If you want to give us a bit of love, a bit of shout-out, just go into iTunes and give us a five-star review. Write one line. Good, bad, or ugly. We don't really care. We just want to hear from you. It keeps our mojo going, and it makes sense of all the hours we put in the studio here, trying to put something together to add value to your world. Speaking of which, speaking of adding value in people's worlds, <laughs> Robbo, behind the panel, behind the steering wheel of the Big Red Bus, mm. welcome. Thank you, mate. With a couple of black eyes to um, add value to the looks of my face. <laughs> Were you playing on the weekend? I was playing on the weekend. I copped a high one. Are you trying to make out that you're actually doing something on the field and you were in the scrum? Is that what you're trying to say? As yes, opposed I... to being, being on the wing with, no. with a packet of Tim Tams watching and yelling out, you over there, go and do that. Well, it's interesting when the water boy, because Liam was the water boy yesterday, when the water boy runs on, there's 14 water bottles in the carrier and one packet of Tim Tams. So, you know. <laughs> And he got, to, he got to the bottom of the pack and looked at you and went, oh, Dad, that's not good. Time that's to retire, good. Dad. That's the end of the day. Looked like Alice Cooper, mate. <laughs> Thanks. I tried my hardest. No, no, no. Stick around. Hang out with us. Cool. Yeah, we'll stay and hang around with you. With Alice Cooper. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. The Mojo Radio Show. Well, speaking of excuses for getting off the footy field early, we're going to find out about a few other excuses this week. Over the last, I'm going to say probably the last three odd years since we met Carolyn Adams-Miller, Professor Lee Waters, Tate Fletcher, Navy SEAL, Andrew Paul, there has been, it has been a thread around resilience and grit. And I've got to say some of our highest rating ever shows around this topic. And our guest today is an Australian Paralympian. And he actually holds the world record for above-the-knee amputees in Ironman. And Brant Garvey, top guy, I met him online. <laughs> that sounds awful, doesn't it? I met him online. I saw a post <laughs> he put you. up and what, what caught my eye was he's created a brand for himself called No Excuses. And this, this actually is quite a powerful thread for us because we, our listeners, for whatever reason, really resonate with this, either for themselves or their children, their family, their business. And when I saw the no excuses thing that Brandt was running and saw what he's achieved and just, just his vibe, I mean, this guy has had challenges since day one, but he just fronts up with a smile on his face. And I thought, you know, he'd be great to get on the show and to share with our listeners. So thankfully we have him here. Brant, uh, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Now, you've got an interesting backstory, which we'll get to. Just before we start, if somebody walks up to you today and says, hey, what do you do? How do you describe it to people? I tell them that I'm uh, a 
professional athlete t- training for the Tokyo 2020 Paralympics and um, a professional speaker. So you, how do you describe being a Paralympian, you're an above-the-knee amputee? Is that the right way to describe it, mate? Yeah, it, it definitely is, and I get, um, I get quite... Uh, particular about above and below the knee. Um, I've had a few incidences where I've been introduced as a below knee amputee and I'm like, I really don't think you guys understand the, the, the physical differences between those two different disabilities. It's a whole new world of complexities that when you don't have the ability to control the lower half of your leg. So that's interesting. I don't think people would think about that in that you don't have, you if you don't have the use of the kneecap, I suspect, to bend it in the running action or the riding action, you've actually just got basically from the thigh connected. And so you yes. don't have that mobility, do you? That's a really interesting thought. Not even so much running, just even trying to tie your shoe or get your shoe on is in, um, a constant challenge. So, you know, not being able to hold your leg in a bent position so you can bring your foot closer to you, you have to like, do it with a straight leg. This is something you were born with. Do you remember, do you recall the actual moment where you actually understood that you were different to the other children, that you actually had this this amputee situation? No, look, I don't even think there was a moment. Um, I just knew that, uh, you know, this was me and I had to figure out different ways of being able to do things. That was kind of what I noticed. I couldn't copy what everyone else was doing. I had to figure out my own unique way of being able to do it. So there's no moment you recall in your life as a kid where something happened or something was said or there was something that went, you know, this is this is what I have to deal with? No, mine was more um, fueled by competitiveness. I just wanted to be able to beat everybody with one leg. That was kind of... Uh, <laughs> that was kind of my motivation. Uh, that was all I was really thinking about. Like, well, if they can do it, I'm going to do it with one leg. And let's let's talk about running for a second. I've heard you say that running was something that you always considered to be essentially impossible and you used yeah. to make excuses and tell yourself these stories that, you know, you can't run. What what changed all that? Because I, hearing you talk about being competitive, you're now competing at the at the elite level. What changed that in your own mind where you went, actually, maybe I can? It was um, an interesting. So even I know obviously lots of other amputees in similar situations to myself and for all of us it was something that uh, I would say 99.9% of us believe isn't possible to do on one leg or at least wasn't. Um, and then I, it was about 2013 when I, I kind of made this mental shift. I, I wanted to stop believing excuses that I and other people made as truths. I wanted to figure out rather than just taking someone's word for it of what was and wasn't possible. Like, you know, almost like scientifically testing things, making sure I tried every possible way before I admitted defeat. And um, it started with uh, CrossFit. That was one of the challenges that I wanted to do. And CrossFit, one of the things inside it which gave me the opportunity to run was that they used to include um, a running component in their workouts. And they would always offer three different distances, the short, medium, or long. And, you know, I was there with a group of, say, 20-plus people, able-bodied people. 
And I would always opt to do the longest distance and therefore everybody else would either have to do the longest distance or be the one that got outran by a one-legged guy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, like that's some real pressure for people on the spot. They're like, oh, if he's doing it, I really, I'm just going to have to do it. And um, so that was a really powerful moment for me, being able to offer perspective in real time of, making all their excuses irrelevant, basically. Um, and it, it started from there. It, it was just a matter of let's take this easy, like, you know, slowly and just get better and better and better at it. And that's, and that's what we did. Take us back to your sister. And there's been a lot written and I've seen TV stories about the relationship between you and your sister. And I guess what I'm interested in, Brad, is that we we look at the own, the, the challenges you've had personally, but what really got you up and about seemed to be an influence from outside of you when you started thinking about somebody else who in your mind was going through a struggle. Tell me about the relationship and what you, what you and your sister went through. Yeah, so obviously um, she was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 13, um, it's a, called Ewing sarcoma and it it tends to attack younger kids, which means it's particularly nasty because uh, no one wants to see a sick young girl. And um, so she had to get chemo and radiation and then came through all that treatment and recovered and then was diagnosed later again. So it started in her hip. The second one was on her lung, so they had to remove her. A, um, a quarter of her lung, and then the last time it came back was again after she got all the, the all clear. Uh, it was on her spine, and then she finally, and I think it was about the age of twenty-two, came out the other end uh, a healthy survivor. Um, but what really stood out to me was during that entire process that uh, she didn't complain once. It was never, it was never why me. It was always about. Let's just take this on, get through it, and then um, I'll see you on the, when, we're, when we're done. To this day, does that still drive you? Do you still have a special place in the back of your mind that you draw upon from your sister when things do get tough? Yeah, 100%. I mean, it's, it's that and also everybody else that has uh, some terrible, terrible situations going on. It's this whole... I'm doing something that I've uh, elected to do. I've got a choice here. So let's um, let's push it as far as I possibly can for the people that don't get a choice. When you're in when you're in a dark place when you're racing or those long days you've got training for Ironman or triathlon or personal challenges you're going through and you think about your sister or those people that you are visualising in your mind, what's your dialogue, Brant? Like I'm always curious on the the dialogue that sits in people's minds that helps them get through those dark moments? Well, like, you know, one of those dark days was this morning. I just just finished a 90-kilometre bike ride in the most horrendous headwind possible and um, also I was just feeling off. And so it was from the very moment I got there, I hated every single minute of that three-and-a-half-hour training session. Um, but. It's, it's the kind of the motivating factor is that uh, the the end goal. I'm I'm doing this to to try and find the very 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 best version of me as a as a triathlete and and hopefully make 
that being the best in the world come Tokyo 2020. So, yeah, there was nothing pleasant about this morning, but I just knew that I had to get it done. And um, I think that's kind of my mentality. No matter how crap it is, I will be able to continue with that grit for that long-term goal. It's the word we like to hear, Gaz. Yeah, and I'm curious, Robbo, it's, it's an interesting thing and it, it has been just for, for Brant to know that it, it's been a bit of a, a thread through our show for probably three years around this word grit and resilience. We've had some experts, positive psychologists on the show to talk about that and we kind of, it resonates with us and I'm always interested in how do you find that place? So the two things I'm interested in with this brand is you're out there, three and a half hour ride. Is it your belief that you find those things about yourself through suffering? And what is it that you bring to the fore where you just want to stop and put down a foot, where you keep going? Where does that grit and resilience, where do you pull that from? I I think it's a process. I think it's something that you, you develop over time. I've always kind of believed that, you know, motivation is kind of the, the spark um, that gets you started. And then it's about being able to uh, develop discipline by doing it every day so just going back and back and then it, and then it becomes that habit which makes it easier i mean we all know that the first training session is definitely definitely the hardest um and so after after a while you get it because it's something i do every single day i know that i can do it i know that i've done it in the past or you know i recently was at a level and that's given me a confidence to, to just go that little bit longer um, so I think that's a that's a massive po- um, part of it, but also being able to follow something that you're passionate about definitely has to be the key, as far as I know, um, for staying true to that that long term goal. It, it seems that having a defined target for you is an important part of what makes Brant tick. And you've set the Olympics. You've mentioned a few times, even in this little interview, you've talked about even going back to when you started to run the the HBF uh, run for a reason, you challenge yourself to do as different distances and you challenge yourself to do 12Ks and you wanted to, to to run past people who were on two legs and you wanted them to look at you and go, wow, that guy could do it with one leg and, and inspire them. It, it seems to me that you need to, you personally need to have something to shoot at. Like it's not just enough to go out there for a ride. You need to know you're training for something. Do you think that's that's an important ingredient in your DNA? Yeah, 100%. So I know things that work well for me is that constant uh, evaluation of goals and then readjusting. And um, the other is accountability to others. So with everything that I've done, I wasn't scared to tell the world that I wanted to do it. And I didn't care if it didn't work. I mean, I got injured in Rio at the the most important race of my life and that that didn't faze me at all. It was more the fact that I wanted to beat the other people there. I didn't care about the fact that it didn't work the way I wanted it to for everyone else. It was just more that I wanted to win. Um, So definitely setting setting those goals is is key and that accountability to others. I just find it so powerful because you've told everybody so then you either have to own up and say, look, I, I didn't do it or show everyone <laughs> that you did. This is an interesting one, Brand. I read a blog that you wrote in January mm-hmm. and the blog talked about the fact that you were lacking motivation to train yeah, and yeah. you were actually making excuses to yourself. Now, I found you, we made contact through LinkedIn and what 
I resonated with with you was the the whole brand you've built around no excuses. Yet what I found ironic about this story was you're essentially sitting on the couch making excuses. So when the no excuses guy is making excuses, <laughs> what did you do or where do you go to? Well, see, that's one of the things I did in an interview I mean, recently and um, like I, my no excuses is my motto, but it doesn't mean that I don't make them. It means that I've gotten better. <laughs> <laughs> it means that I've gotten better at catching myself making them and then calling BS basically. So I'm like, I... I make them all the time. I make excuses, but what I, I've noticed is that I'll I'll stop and I go, wait a minute, that's not actually factual. That's me just copying out. Let's let's go back and actually do it. And one of the things was after Rio, uh, that break, getting injured, then recovery, I was out of that routine. I was out of that habit, and that first trying to get back into that rhythm of training was horrendous. It was so challenging. And it was, you know, you're training for something that's four years away. It's so easy just to go, oh, we'll start tomorrow. We've got four years. But the but the rest of the world isn't starting tomorrow. And um, so, again, I, I used accountability. I, I set myself a challenge of wanting to train 100 days with no days off. And to give some context, I, you know, I trained 16 times a week. So that was 16 training sessions a week, not missing one for a, for 100 days. I I got to about day 16 and I broke my artificial leg. So um, that, that was, but it, it worked. The actual purpose of the challenge I set was to get me back into the training and it worked. Because you've got your own clothing line and you're known as the no excuses guy, and I, and I love all that, Brant, I, what, what have you learned about the psychology behind that? I think it's admirable that you go, look, I make excuses all the time because people tend to think that, because this guy's written a book or done these TV commercials or represented Australia, they don't have these things. But you're being honest enough to say, mate, of course I have. Everyone, everyone's making them. Tell me the psychology that you have learned about catching yourself making those excuses, but then rather than making more excuses for excuses, actually getting it done. What have you learned? What have you seen? What's your take on the psychology behind that? One of the things that I noticed really early on was that in our culture, we tend to uh, encourage excuses. So if someone comes into work and it's like, oh, I was going to go to the gym this morning, but it was cold, rather than actually pull them up on it, they will we'll go, oh, you know what, it was cold. Or you went yesterday, you don't need to go today. I, and for some reason we've got this this culture where we have started to um, support all those excuses. And so that's what I noticed and I wanted to be the, the opposite of that. I wanted to just pull people up on it and including myself. And like I said, it's not something, it's not something you can just turn on and off. It's something that you have to be disciplined to kind of evaluate every every choice you make. Like so look back on it and go, wait a minute, was that was that me just making an excuse that I didn't have to do it or to avoid accountability? Or was there something that I could do differently to make that happen? And that practice of that process is something that you get better and better at as you as you continue to do it. And then um, yeah, when you stop making those excuses, it's really phenomenal to see what you can actually do. It's funny, we had a lady in the show only a couple of weeks ago called Lauren Handel Zander, who's an author from New York, and she's written a book of recent times called Maybe It's You. And she is a straight, straight up and down, no crap, no mucking around life coach for, you know, celebrities and 
big time CEOs and actors and so on. And she confronts people. And part of the part of the book is about, you know, facing your fears, cutting the crap. And she will sack clients if they <laughs> tend to go down this thing of making excuses because she just she calls them on it. And she she's yep. very, she's quite abrupt, but she's cool with that. Like it's part of her brand. Mm-hmm. And she's famous for it. So if you want to cut the crap and get it, then you get lowered in. And she was a wonderful interview. And just with what you're saying, it just something that occurs to me is that people seem to be so thin-skinned today that when you do call them on their excuses, they tend to get they take they take exception to it. They they find it very confronting. Yeah, what have you noticed offended. about that? Because <laughs> you've you've built a brand around that. You're calling. Are you calling people on it when you do? How do you normally handle that? What's their reaction? I'd say I'm very diplomatic in my approach. It would be more um, a way of kind of having a conversation to get them realise that they're making excuses rather than the flat out. Uh, uh, you're li- just lying. You, you have no. Is, I mean, the, <laughs> amount, <laughs> the amount of people that. Um, you come up to me and uh, can almost so they'll come up to me and after I've done a talk or something like that and they'll be like, yeah, man, that was amazing. I'd love to run, but um, you know, I've got an ankle, a sore ankle, or I've had a knee reconstruction or or something. And in their minds, that's a that's a justifiable excuse for for not running. And I've just spoken literally about doing a 42k marathon on one leg which I started running, say, two months before that marathon. And I was also born without the cruciate ligaments in my good leg. And, you know, that that excuse still for them in their current state of mind is true yeah. and, and is, is, you know, enough for them to not, not go running. Let's talk about your actual running and triathlon. You mentioned just before that you actually broke your leg. That, that's... That sounds like a big Which deal time? for you because that's that's yeah exactly. To break one of your legs is a big deal, isn't it? It's, it's quite an expensive thing. Yeah, I mean, tool. I've I've I'm broken. I, could, I wouldn't even be able to count how many legs I've broken. Um, you know, like through high school and stuff. Like that, I used to destroy a leg within six months. Uh, they'd have bits falling off. Um, I'm, I wanted it's a classic story, but like you know. I used to play soccer and hockey in, in school and my parents would have to bring, you know, like why everyone else's parents were bringing down cut oranges, my parents would have to bring down a can of CRC and Allen keys and, and, be, tweaking, <laughs> and be tweaking my leg in uh, in quarter times and times out. So, you know, like I there was times when my foot would come loose and it would just spin around a 360 every time I took a step. Oh, no. <laughs> um, but they were kind of my everyday legs. Now that I've uh, got my my running leg and my cycling leg, yeah, they're, they're twenty thousand dollars each, and I have a you know, piece. The, yeah, and does Medicare and, cover that? No, no, no <laughs> one covers that other than me. Wow. Um, yeah, so sporting legs are self-funded because they're recreational. Everyday leg, you can get a um, a percentage uh, covered. Yeah. But yeah, so I'm I. Saved up and got a twenty thousand dollar running leg. There was a huge amount of people that helped me get it. 
Um, within two years, I destroyed a knee and a blade, and that was fourteen thousand dollars in May. Do you know the picture I get in my head when I hear you talking about that? Is you know in Forrest Gump where he's got his legs in braces and he's running down the road with the kids chasing him, and the whole thing starts to fall apart and shatter. <laughs> yeah, I can picture that's you in the middle of a soccer pitch or something, and that happening. <laughs> See, that's a really powerful, dramatic scene. Mine's yeah. never that cool. Mine's more like stack it, land on my face. <laughs> can I just ask you about the the legs? And and, and I'm sure. Sure, Brant, I'm not the only one who is curious about this. And I'm sure a lot of us are curious but don't have the courage to ask the question or we make excuses. So I'm not going to make excuses. <laughs> I've seen you run. You are competing. You've said that when you're competing in the Olympics, you are up against elite athletes. Like Although these guys may be amputees or maybe in the Paralympics, these guys are going fast. Like they are actually racing, what keeps an above-the-knee prosthesis in place? When you are, you've jumped off the bike, you're now into the run. In an Ironman, you've got to do a marathon or if you're racing in triathlon, you're going a shorter distance but I suspect faster. What actually keeps it in place? Um, A bit of luck. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) Some some glue maybe? There's... there's, um... There's, there's a whole bunch of different systems. Above knee amputee is much, it seems to be more complicated in terms of, you know, the, the natural shape of a thigh is kind of like a cone shape, so it tapers off. Which um, So what my leg system, which we seem to have a lot of luck in terms of um, it keeping it on, but then also being really fast through transitions, so being able to swap legs quickly. So what happens is I wear a silicon liner that has basically two layers to it. That silicon liner then wraps over me and then one layer folds over the top and creates a mm. vacuum seal. And then so you've got a one-way valve on the leg that lets the air out and then doesn't let it back in. Is it painful? Wow. Is it a painful thing to wear? Like I can imagine, like I'm, I'm thinking about the amount of pressure that you exert when you're running. The picture I get in my head is that the end of that, for want of a better word, stump of your leg is slamming onto the top of something hard. Is is it uncomfortable? It um it can be, but it depends on like this is my experience that it depends on the person making it. So I've had um so many uncomfortable legs and you know stages through my life where I would opt for crutches or a wheelchair over wearing an artificial leg. But the um the people that make my legs uh, now are phenomenal. So I, I mean. I that was it was a life changing experience. So I can used to be like take my leg off as soon as I could. Now I can wear any one of them all day without even thinking about it, and then just take it off before going to bed. Can I ask who makes them? For you? Yeah, um, OPS in um, Leadable in Perth. Hmm. Um, and they've they I mean <sighs> the guy that I see there, Andrew Veering. Um, one of the things that stood out for me was that he was as passionate as I was to sport as he is to making sure the leg fits right. That was his priority. That was that the leg was the most comfortable it could possibly be for that particular person. And that, that was where the difference was. It's ironic because Andrew's a big fan of the Mojo Radio Show. I don't know if you knew that, Ron, <laughs> that's come up in conversation during your fittings and stuff, but uh, big, big fan of the show. He's always on the line to us. <laughs> Um, Do you know something else that that has occurred to me? Uh, Robbo and I used to work together in radio back in the days of Triple M and we had back in those days a rock star 
who would come into the studio on a pretty regular basis and do live performances or we'd, produce, we'd um, promote albums for him. Yep. And it turned out that he actually had one, he was an amputee, like he had only had one leg, so he used to wear a prosthetic. But no one knew it because he always turned up in jeans. And I used to even see him in the street, even of recent times. And pretty much no one knows because he hid it. However, yep. for, for you, you've said you always wore shorts. So wherever it was politically correct to wear shorts, you did. Because psychologically it was a way for you to deal with it. So all along you've actually had this leg to show the fact that you're dealing with this. Tell me, tell me what, what was your approach to that brand? Like how, what was going through your mind and why was that so important for you? Yeah, so for me, I, what I found is a lot of, um, I mean, I get asked this question a lot, like if I was bullied through school. But my approach was that it was normal for me. I didn't know any different uh, being born like it. And I was more than happy to talk about it. And by being open about it, it kind of took that awkwardness of uh, people finding out on the spot. They got they got a chance to see it, kind of discuss it, think about it, process it. And then by the time it came to chatting to me, they were already, you know, were well aware of it. And then I was open to speak about it. So it really took away any kind of ammunition for any negative talk. And if there was negative talk, I didn't really care. So... It didn't have any effect. It's a bit like Eminem being on stage and dissing himself and his rap before the guy he's rapping against can say anything. Because I've sort of he said it all. It's kind of done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. And if you know, if you, if you, I, I like being compared to Eminem. But, uh, <laughs> I have had his haircut yeah. once. Which we don't need to bring those photos up ever again. But um, <laughs> no, but, but it's true. Like if you're if you're willing to be okay with it and even and laugh at yourself then um, make a joke at yourself, uh, it, it really gives no one else any power. It shows that you've accepted it. Mm. Just while we're on the Rockstar Avenue for a minute, I, I'm, I'm interested to know, Def Leppard and he, the drummer's name eludes me. I, I usually know it, but I can't, I can't get it on the tip of my tongue right now. But he has one arm. He, it led him to invent a whole different way of drumming and a whole different setup for his kit that um, worked for him on stage and obviously made Def Leppard one of the biggest bands in the world in their time. What has having one leg meant to you and your running style? Has that changed anything and the way you have to run, the way you have to train, all that sort of stuff? Has that changed much? No, so for me, the entire process of running was to try and replicate as closely as possible to running as uh, an able-bodied athlete. I firmly believe that the more that I could get it to be as technically correct, then the faster I would be. And so that's all we did. We just we went rather than, it sounds, you know, in terms of the motto, rather than making excuses of, of um, why we can't do it the same, let's let's see if we can. And, um, and, and we managed to, yeah, get really quite, I mean, in terms of above-knee running, uh, there's, there's a guy in... Canberra, Scott Reardon, um, who is technically what I would say perfect at running as an above-knee amputee. I mean, if you only saw the upper half of his body, you would have no idea that he's an amputee. Mm -hmm. And so that also gave me that kind of proof that it, it was possible, which was very hard to find in the old amputee running world. There's not a lot of data there. Big shout-out to Scotty Reardon. Reardos. 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 <laughs> 
The red yes. stuff. <laughs> the red and red and It is absolutely phenomenal. Um, I, I've got to say, I love talking to guys like you, Brant, because from the minute you were born, you just dealt with this thing. I admire your sister and the one of the things you said was that through the whole process of having three different bouts of cancer or having to deal with cancer three times, she never once complained. I'm interested to know that given all that you've been through so far, what what is what has been the biggest challenge for you to date for, for Brandt? What's been your biggest challenge? I would have to say the biggest, most difficult challenge that kind of blindsided me too coming from the outside world Um. Kind of this this two. So one of them is being able to financially back yourself to to get into the games. I I had the outside perception of if you you were one of the best in the world, then it would be all sorted out for you. You'd be done. You you just rock up and people would be giving you money to to go and do what you needed to do. Uh, it's so far from the truth in terms of I've probably spent more time than I do training on trying to actually finance this journey. Mm. Um, and then and then the second is when you're an elite athlete. I mean, I've heard it so many times uh, growing up as a kid that, you know, like your, your, your mind will be the limiting factor over, over your body. Um, you know, you can always push harder. And one of the things that I've learned, especially in triathlon, is that's not necessarily the case. Like I have... I've pushed myself um, too hard too many times and been injured. And so dealing with injury as an athlete, especially as an elite athlete, is a very, very frustrating process. When you spend all your time uh, working out and then you get injured and you can't do any of that, um, the mental challenge there is is quite difficult. So let's just, just camp there for a second. You talk about the mental approach, and I, I really admire the way that you have articulated that. When... What's your what's your mental approach, Brant, when things don't go your way? For that moment where your body has just had it, it's just done and it's in the middle of a race or you haven't performed the way you want to, what's your mental approach to stuff that doesn't go the way you want it? Depends on how uh, big it is. You know, there's obviously a moment of pure uh, anger and frustration, like, you know, getting injured in Rio. And, and then it comes back to that um, always looking at, being resilient and uh, and learning in that space, and so I, I think that resourcefulness is a is a huge key in resiliency. And um, so I sit back and then I start to talk to people who are experts in in where something went wrong and and learn from them or get them to help me to to figure out a new way around it or through it. If we are in the eye, let's, let's we'll, we'll take that off ramp there for a second. If I am thinking about the Iron Man. You've done the swim, you've done the bike, 180-odd Ks, you are in the marathon. It's been said in a marathon by itself without even being in an Ironman that the race really starts at 30, 32, 35 Ks. It's at that point where the wheels start to fall off. If I could look into your soul at that moment where you are in the hurt locker and you're starting to doubt yourself, what would I see or hear in brand, uh, Ironman particularly was heavily heavily focused around my uh, my sister. So in those those thirty two kilometer moments, I mean there were plenty of walls throughout that triathlon and all that Ironman. Um, 
But yeah, just being able to see what she had to go through in terms of the absolute horrendous treatment and all that excruciating pain and discomfort, it made mine look like a walk in the park. And that, that's really what it was. It was, that, it, was a, it was perspective. It was she got through this and survived. I'm losing toenails. I mean, you know, it sounds horrific, but not as bad as what she had. Do you carry any fears? I, you know what? I, um, I, I definitely do. I have fears, but what, uh, what I love doing is challenging them. So uh, one of the things was um, one of the reasons we've started this recent um, YouTube series, which we call Daily Grit, is uh, all about being able to chuck myself into uncomfortable situations that I'm, you know, either are extremely difficult or I'm afraid of. And one of the things I had to do the other day was dance to a Backstreet Boys song. I have to like <laughs> that's not very mojo show. No, no. And um <laughs> we can edit we can edit that out. <laughs> and I literally have no dancing ability whatsoever. Like I don't even think it would matter if I had two legs. Like I think that that's how bad I am. But one leg makes it even more horrendous. And I had to do it in front of a green screen and then they were dropping some like classic Backstreet Boy clip behind it. And it was just absolutely horrendous and it's probably one of my greatest fears. Uh, uh, and then we did it and it was over. And you now there's proof out there that everyone's able to see, which is obviously extremely embarrassing. But at the end of the day, it didn't kill me. <laughs> you know, I love that story, but is there actually a, such a thing as a classic Backstreet Boys clip? <laughs> <laughs> one that people knew. I, I, I don't know. Like I didn't even recognize the clip. <laughs> I think um, you answered it. <laughs> Um, But, yeah, look, it was pretty horrendous. And I'd say the next one is probably going to be singing in public. You know, my my singing skills somehow worse than my dancing skills. I'm well and truly tone deaf. Um, And so that's kind of the uncomfortable scenario we're going to throw ourselves into. So you're a runner, not a singer. Is that what you're telling us? Oh, I'm I'm definitely, (laughs) I mean, I'm not even that great at running, but I'm definitely a lot better at that than I am singing Wow. <laughs> I don't know who it's worse for the, the people that have to listen or me and my uncomfortable. Just talking about getting uncomfortable or reveling in discomfort, there is footage of you having to abseil off a building which looked pretty tall. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You, you said in that setup to going off the edge that you were dripping in sweat. Yep. You looked, you, you're right. The look in your eyes, you'd look quite nervous. What was the dialogue going through your head as you went over the edge to do that? What got you over the edge and what kept you going to get to the bottom? Um, I think it was something, I think it was something along, um, Amory, you owe me big time or something along those lines. Uh, because it was, ra- it was raising money for, uh, Council Council WA. Um, uh, and, it's you know it's all it was all about the um the, the children. So that was PMH where my sister was, and um and uh, yes, yeah, so I was saying the things you you do for um sick kids. I was absolutely terrified. I'm terrified of heights. And again, so I did that to to kind of do that and raise money. And well and truly hated every single second of it. Uh, and then and then a couple of weeks later, I decided to to do bungee jumping to take it to the next level. 
off, off it, the, the tallest tower uh, of 233 metres. It's crazy what the mind does to you though, right, isn't it? I mean, I, I have vertigo, I, just probably the same as you. I, I'm shit scared of heights. Yep. Yet I can abseil. Like if I'm, if I'm physically strapped into a harness and I have a rope to hold on to, I'll, 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 I'll repel off the highest cliff. But if you take me up to the top of Sydney Tower... Or, you know, or treetops, which is like a, a sort of, you know, walk through the canopy really high off the ground in a rainforest, I'll hang on for dear life. It's, it's crazy <laughs> how the, the mind sort of breaks things down into different categories or something, obviously. It's weird, right? What, what about forward abseiling? Have you done that yet? Yes. Well, we used to call it suicide when I learned <laughs> where you basically have the, you basically just have the, the belt strapped around your waist with the carabiner attached to the rope and you basically run down the face. I'm fine with that too. Oh, but but I can't stand. Not. I can't even stand in a tower. I, I, I can't. I can't stand in an enclosed tower that's obviously structurally sound. I can't do that. It scares the living daylights out of me. So yeah, I don't. That, I can't figure it out. I know. I think that's the power of the mind and the the amount of um, uh, of you know power that we can give these scenarios mm. without even really knowing it. Yeah, and when it makes no logical sense. I think there's real power in what you're saying, Brant. That it seems a theme through what we've talked about on the show to date is that when you can visualise doing it for someone else and being of service, it does give you that courage because you've talked a number of times about those dark places and or places where you were you know, scared. But every time we talk about that, you seem to go back to the fact that you were visualising or emotionally attaching someone else and their world and being able to be of service to those people. It, it seems to be part of your MO. Would that be right? Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely is. Um, it, it just sometimes you need to make it uh, bigger than yourself, that's for sure, uh, or even even remove yourself from the actual experience so you're kind of just observing yourself go through the torture. Well, this has been great, mate. We, uh, we so appreciate your time. It's been a real delight talking to you, mate. I, I love the way you've articulated your journey. I love the courage you've shown since you were a child to, to do what you do, you now have an impact on others. You're currently in training for 2020 Paralympics, is that right? Yep. Yeah, that's the uh, the long-term goal. Um, got world champs this year in September in Rotterdam, though, so that's that's kind of what keeps me on, on track in the short term. And so you'll have to go through qualifying, obviously, for 2020 or are you an automatic selection based on Rio? Like, is, is, so is it Worlds, then qualifying for Australia, then to Paralympics? Is that your process? No, so look, it, with the, the Olympics, it's um, also the Paralympics. It, we won't really know until uh, the year before. Uh, this yeah, okay. this stuff is just kind of keeping your ranking so that you're, you're yes. around the top. It just makes it makes it easier and we don't even know if our classification is going to be in the games yet so we could we could be doing it all for nothing so how do you go for a training plan just quickly i know we've got to wrap this up but just quickly how do you go for a training plan do you do do you do do you i mean you obviously ramp up to world championships but i guess my question is is there a bigger ramp up to the olympics than there would be to the to the to the world champs or is it pretty much the same no not really it kind of seems to cycle through uh you know, you have a, an easier week and then you would build to say uh, four weeks or something and you kind of go through that cycle. And it's just about slowly and progressively building that up after each cycle. So you're not, you know, obviously you you train your breaks around making sure that you're at your, your top for world champs and then again for 
for Rio, but it's not like anything really changed. We just we do so much every week anyway. You really couldn't add anything extra to it. Where where will people find more about you, Brant? Where do you send people to either, number one, help you with your sponsorship, number two, get more information on you, uh, follow, or in fact, even check out on this new a series that you're doing on YouTube. Where's the best place to send people? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, every all your support is absolutely adored. Um, it's <laughs> at Brant Garvey at everything uh, or brantgarvey.com. So those are the, the two main places to find me. And yeah, I, I try to be present on, on every platform because it seems to be the best way. It is. Well, mate, thank you for your time. We'll let you get back to your training. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we got the Savos run. So that should be about a nice 10K run. Um, can't be any worse than this morning's bike ride. Honestly, that's going to be one of the, uh, the most painful bike rides that I've done in a long time. <laughs> I um, just think we're going to just get after it. Just yeah, get yeah. it done. <laughs> hey, is the Swan River pretty cold this time of year when you go swimming? Uh, everywhere is pretty cold at this time of year. <laughs> I mean, it's not even that bad, but I've become such a sissy uh, once you go train in warm weathers. I'm definitely, now that I'm a, a lean triathlete, I'm a bit of a diva when it comes to cold weather. <laughs> <laughs> What do they what do they cover themselves in? Is it Vaseline or something? The channel swimmers and all that? Can you do that? Yeah, that Blubber. Lanolin, isn't it? Yeah. Blubber, yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think also that stuff never comes off. So you literally just have it everywhere and on everything after we after you put it on once. No, we yeah, yeah. in a wetsuit, but um but just yeah, raining riding in the rain is is not a not a oh, happy place. Yeah, no, no thanks. <laughs> That's why I drive a car and don't ride a motorbike, trust me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks so much for your time. Hey? The Mojo Radio Show. So I'm going to take you way, way, way back now. In fact, back all the way back to episode 17. How far back is that now? <laughs> that seems like an eternity. It's a lifetime ago. Absolutely. Well, it was a double shot Monday uh, and one of our guests, however, was Lauren Ruddick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, So for those who haven't heard that episode, Lauren is a digital nomad. She spends her life travelling the globe instructing yoga. Uh, and um, she dropped me a note the other day to say that she's got some interesting stuff in the works. So I thought it might be worth getting her on to, um, to catch up. So on the line, all the way from Costa Rica in the beautiful sunshine, Lauren Ruddick, welcome back to the Mojo Radio Show. Thanks, man. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, man. Now- hey, we don't get called that very often. Love it. <laughs> Great start. I did, I Now, can. we haven't seen you for a little while. The last time we spoke mm-hmm. was uh, some time back and you had just done your 365-day handstand challenge, which we'll talk about shortly. Since I, I'd be curious, you're a person who's very in touch with yourself and your surroundings and you're a traveller, a yoga instructor. I'd be curious to know, in the last year or so since we saw you, what have you discovered about yourself? Wow, that's a heavy question. Yeah, <laughs> Great way to start, go. right? At the at the end, yeah, the get right in there. <laughs> I think. Well, I think it's been more than a year since we've spoken. I think it's yeah. been at least two or three, maybe. Wow. But in the last year, I can tell you this: what I've discovered about myself is that I can't do everything alone, and I need to ask for help, and I need to trust others. And collaborate. And finally, I've realized that I'm ready to grow up a little bit. (laughs) Was that a tough realization to come to, Lauren? I think so. I think I look quite young and my lifestyle is 
largely about like traveling and teaching people how to live their passions and being really enthusiastic and, you know, hosting yoga dance parties and teaching people how to do handstands. And it's all really playful. And I guess part of me thought that I have to maintain this sort of childish nature in order to heed the course of my career. But then I realized I'm still allowed to have adult wants and desires and keep my inner child and stay really playful. It doesn't mean I have to ignore the ideas of eventually having a family or living in a grown-up home or establishing roots. It, it kind of leads me somewhere. The reason I asked the question about what you've discovered about yourself in the last year or so is that you talked about something which I found very interesting. I wanted your perspective on. You said that your new program, which we'll talk about in a sec, is about helping people discover their true nature. Now, we've spoken to a lot of guests, 150-odd shows over the last couple of years, and we talk about finding our true self or self-actualization. I was just wondering, do you think your true nature is a different thing to your true self or are they one and the same? Or is there, is there a slight difference? Because how you frame it on your videos, the what you talk about, it seems to me it's different. I feel like true nature is a lifestyle thing and your true self is who you are at your base. Does that make sense? Gold yoga pants right there. Oh, <laughs> stretchy, gold stretchy gold. Hooray! Lycra gold. Lycra gold. <laughs> If you can find me a pair of Lycra gold pants, I will wear them. I promise and send you photos. Oh, don't tempt him. Kylie Minogue. Kylie Minogue <laughs> get you in touch with someone else. Oh, right. Yeah, that she does have them. That, that whole lifestyle versus just yourself. Tell me more about that because you, uh, people who look at your Instagram feed, you certainly have created a lifestyle around what you do. Just, just tell me more about that in your mind. I can only really share what I know, which is a bit about myself. And I think my true nature is someone who travels, someone who likes to create, someone who likes to curate programs, someone who likes to take people out of their comfort zone and then find a sense of empowerment, self-love, and new comfort in a new place, in a new environment, surrounded by nature and with adventure. So I think that's my true nature is curating these experiences, the way in which I live my life. But if I was going to say what my true self is, mm. these would be more personality type qualities. I hope my true self is love. <laughs> I think it's really good. I, I, you, your new program, which I'll ask you to tell us about shortly, talks about people living their best life. Can you think of an example of someone who has worked with you or done your program when you were in beta or has come to, say, a yoga program in Bali when you run a retreat? Someone that's come to you made changes who now believes they're living their best life. From a third-party perspective, what does that look like? How do you describe somebody who's living their best life? Yeah, I can actually think of two examples the first one is a woman who did my very first yoga teacher training a couple of years ago. She was a nurse from Sweden and very burnt out. She decided to come to Santa Teresa, Costa Rica to take a teacher training because she had been here before on vacation. 
she just wanted to learn more about yoga, the practice, and take a month for herself to decompress, to relax, maybe to get an objective view of her life, and, and a kind of a vacation with yoga. And when she finished the program, there happened to be a Swedish yoga retreat company in town. And we encourage our students to kind of pound the pavements and talk to everyone and put themselves out there. That's how you get jobs, right? And she went up to the founders of this yoga retreat company and just said, hey, I I recently graduated a 200-hour yoga teacher training. I'll be in town for another month. If there's any help you need, I'd love to help you out. As it turned out, they had recently let go of one of their teachers and they said, actually, there is a gap right now in our schedule. We can use some help. Will you be sort of an apprentice for us? And she said, yes. She immediately clicked with the values and the owners of this yoga company. And slowly she was given more and more responsibility and kind of taught the rubric of how they run successful retreats. And it's been about two years now, and she is still with the same company, traveling around the world, has a very high position in the company, and running her own yoga retreats globally. That's pretty cool. Yeah, really amazing. And honestly, as her teacher trainer, it feels super, super wonderful. It's a huge source of you know pride, and, and I feel successful because she's found her success. So I think that someone who kind of found her true nature, she thought... Yeah. She knew her true nature was like helping people or her true self was someone who likes to help people and give. And so that's why she originally went into nursing. But her true nature seems like it was someone who was really capable of working well with the team and accommodating guests and organizing travel experiences. We first came across your work on Mind, Body, Green, where you wrote a story about, I did a handstand every day for 365 days. Um, Here's what happened. And looking back now, so say it's been two years since we spoke to you, looking back now, how did that experiment impact your life today? Oh, it completely changed my life. It put me on the international map, really. That's what allowed my Instagram feed to grow. It got me invitations to teach at festivals and studios internationally. And from there, my network grew, my following grew. And even to this day, the majority of people who join me on yoga retreats, teacher trainings, or who subscribe to the online yoga studio I have are still finding me on Instagram. Hmm. So if that 365 day handstand challenge wouldn't have happened, I don't know where I'd be today. I'd probably still be living in Canada, teaching 10 classes a week and being, (laughs) maybe not. I don't really know, but it definitely changed my life. And the amount of people I got to meet through that challenge. I mean, I think I've taught handstands like thousands of people all over the world. What a trip. That is a trip. (laughs) I'm going to, I'm going to segue into something else here. I'm going to go from handstand 365 to meditate 365. Are you still in your 365 meditate phase? Are you in the middle of that still or are you coming to the end of it? Oh my gosh, I'm trying so hard for meditate 365, which is meditating every day for a year. And 
I've had to restart probably 300 times. <laughs> so am I in it? Yeah, I'm really in it. I'm really trying to meditate every day for a year. And it's so freaking hard. I think it's the hardest thing I've ever tried. Even this morning, I was trying to meditate. I went to the beach to meditate. I found a really comfortable spot. I'm in the sun. The weather was beautiful. I'm excited. I closed my eyes. I'm feeling like I'm really in the zone. And then this dog came and lunged at my dog and he reacted and suddenly there was a dog fight and I had to, you know, intervene and throw sticks and separate these dogs. And I was like, oh fuck, come on universe. Let me freaking meditate. <laughs> I, th- I, I, was, I was meditating at my coffee machine this morning. <laughs> God. Tell me more. No, no. And I came across a question that I wanted to ask you and I'm intrigued by this because I know every single person goes through this. So you've openly written on your Instagram feed and so on about people who may not like what you post, whether it be a photo or a comment or the angle of photography. And there was one particular post I, I saw <laughs> saying, I put this photo back up. If you don't like my stuff, then unsubscribe. Don't follow me. Yeah. So that happens and, and good on you. And you walk away from that day, you've made your post, you've made your stand, but I suspect that that sits with you in the back of your mind. Like that is something that's playing at you, gnaws away at you, these trolls, right or wrong, it's your world and their opinion is getting inside your mojo. Do you have a practice or a process that you go through that can push that aside when you walk on the yoga mat. Let's let's put meditation aside because it sounds like a struggle struggle right now. But <laughs> let's talk the yoga mat because that is your gig. That's your lane, and you're internationally known for it. How do you step outside that world where people are using their opinions to try and get inside your soul to then go on the yoga mat where you can have the chance to influence people around the world and, and truly work in your lane. What's your process for that? To be honest, it doesn't eke me that much. For one, I don't really believe in censorship. If I want to use discretion against what I am reading or seeking as content, I think as a responsible adult, that's my choice. If something is inherently bothering me, I can choose not to look and not to see. I take the same take to my Instagram account. I don't think what I'm posting is vulgar. It's not over-sexualized. I'm happy to celebrate my body. I'm happy to share that with people. It's authentic. It's honest. And so if people hate on me or read in another intention that I don't mean or flag a photo where I'm tastefully nude, in my opinion, tastefully nude, flag a photo as inappropriate, honestly, I think it's on them. And if they don't like it, they can choose not to look. They have chosen to press the follow button. And this is what amazes me. Sometimes people personally message me to tell me they don't like my content. And I'm like, great, no problem. Press (laughs) unfollow. Like you chose to follow me. Um, Also though, Yogi Bhajan talks about, and he's a Kundalini yoga master or was, he passed away. He talks about everybody you meet as being a mirror to you. So I think if someone really bothers me or someone's comment really bothers me, I have to look inside myself and see why, what it is about them that's bo- their comment or their words that's bothering me. And are they really just reflecting 
back at me an indignity that I felt or a shame that I felt or an inappropriateness I should have considered or reconsidered. So Lauren, let's, let's talk about your new program. So you've launched, it's a very interesting program because you've, you've combined a bunch of things into it. What, what is it? How do we get onto it? Okay. So I have a course called Turn Your Life Upside Down, The Ultimate Guide to Living Your Passions and Doing Handstands If You Want To. So basically the course combines what I've learned in my years of teaching yoga around the world, living a lifestyle that's a little bit off the beaten path, but truly my passion and the desire for many, many people out there to want to learn the coolest yoga party trick, which is the coveted handstand. I've never mastered the handstand, I've got to admit. You better take the course. I better take the course. You're right. Absolutely. So what is the course, Lauren? Is it, is it, is it videos and blogs? Is it one-on-ones with you? Like we sign up for the course. How does something like this work? So it's a four-week and four-module course. And each week you will get a couple of chapters of the ebook. So there's a 65-page fully illustrated ebook. So each week you'll get a portion of the book and it contains journaling exercises for you to do to do some self-reflection. It also will give you two guided meditation videos. You can also just listen to them and the audio. And so you can do guided meditations about kind of discovering what your true nature is, what your patterns are, and how to move towards living them. And then each week also includes a guided yoga practice that you can do with me. So it's a video practice. And so the whole course together is an ebook, many journaling exercises, sort of self-reflection and thought. There's five guided meditations. Oh no, excuse me, seven guided meditations, five guided yoga practices, and then two bonus yoga practices. One is a yin practice if you're feeling kind of down, out, and tired. And then the other one is a posture setting practice for meditation to help guide you to success. So there is somebody listening to the show who may not be in the same category as yoga, meditation, and so on, but has got their own idea for doing a side hustle around an online course of some description. How did you go about doing it? I mean, is it your own photography? Did you write all the copy for it? Did you have to outsource it to coders to build it? Like how, 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 what steps do you go through to build your own online course like this? Months ago, actually, about a year ago, someone said, hey, you should do an online course. And I was like, what would I do? <laughs> yeah, great idea. I have no idea how to do that. And then one day I was actually meditating where all my good ideas come to me. And it was just this epiphany of this course that I could offer, which would combine like my experience with yoga and traveling and kind of finding your own path in life. And I just want to say this, the course is not just for yogis. It's not just for people who want to become traveling yoga teachers. It's for anyone. For some people, their ideal dream life is having a family and staying in one place and growing roots in the suburbs. And I think that's wonderful. And I really honor that if that's your goal. And so it's really for anyone to live their passions, whatever their passions might be. So to produce the course, it started with the book. I started writing and writing and writing, and I didn't expect to end up writing a full book. That was a surprise. And then I knew that I wanted to do guided yoga practices with it. And it's all self-produced, so I have the camera equipment and the microphones and whatnot. And 
my intern last year helped me do the actual recording. She helped with, you know, stand-ins and making sure everything was in focus and framing, all that kind of stuff. And then we just got to it. We started filming little yoga practices and filming the meditations and editing the course. And then she actually did it for herself to see if it was congruent. Mm-hmm. And I asked her to do the journaling practices and give me lots of feedback. And then I've subsequently given some of the written portions to friends and family for them to try and give me feedback and see if they found it helpful and kind of linear, sensible. And that's how it came about. In terms of the actual web interface, that's where I ran into a bit of a snag and I've called on a web developer to help me build that out. But a lot of it you've done yourself, like in terms of the the videoing and the writing and piecing a lot of the contents and the visuals together, that's pretty much come from you. And it's just a matter of having the idea and then getting started, isn't it? Totally. And today there's all kinds of websites that can help you do these things. Like I know Teachable is one and Udemy is another. Mm. And this helps you like build out your own online courses. So where do we find it? Like what's, where, where do you find people to check out you and check out this new program? You can go to my website, laurenruddick.com. It's L-A-U-R-E-N-R-U-D-I-C-K.com. It'll be there. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Lauren Ruddick and there will be a link there to take the course. Beauty. That's great. Well, it's been lovely catching up. You as well. So nice to chat with you both. So pleased that it's going well. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure Robert's going to subscribe to your course and he'll have meditation, yoga, journaling and beer. I was actually going to suggest that Lauren subscribe to the Mojo Radio Show Facebook page and I might post a few photos of me doing some beer yoga. Or not. In. Done. <laughs> beer has brought you to yoga. Oh, hey. <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's brought into a lot more than yoga. Um, <laughs> the attention of the police on more than one occasion. <laughs> now, Lauren, I mean, I think as, as far as places beer can bring you, I think yoga is probably one of the more healthier ones. Yeah, there you uh, go. True. As we know, beer brings us to all kinds of strange places. Well, Lauren, thank you so much. Just love, lovely, lovely chatting to you. Thank and, you. Uh, so great to talk uh, to you. Good luck with the course. Thanks for getting in touch with us. We love, we love hearing. In fact, I think one of the greatest, the greatest joys. I mean, we get yeah. a lot of learning from the show. We get a lot of enjoyment from doing it, and so much information and skills and everything else. But probably one of the greatest things is when people we've had on the show before get in touch with us and come back on the show. It's just uh, that that's the real joy because um, we've built these relationships with people around the world, but we've never met, but you kind of have this relationship because we've done the show, the show worked um, and you got, you know, we've got great respect for what you do. So it's been terrific. And likewise, it's so cool. It's so cool to listen and see what you're up to. And to be honest, you were the first podcast I was ever on. I remember you saying that when we were recording, yeah. I didn't know anything really about the world of podcasting or what, you know, what it was. And now I listen to podcasts all the time and I see how much value there are in them and what a great listenership you have. And it's just really, really cool to be involved. So I want to thank you for letting me back on again and having these really cool, pertinent conversations. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show. I'll be coming to see you. Now, you know how my mind works with this stuff, right? <laughs> no, yes, sad, sadly, this could go anywhere, folks. And it is, trust me. I, I, all the way through that interview, do you remember this Matchbox 20 song? <laughs> I just couldn't get it out of my head. <laughs> I had to go there, sorry. Robbie Thomas. Robbie Thomas, exactly. Interestingly enough, though, 
in my research for the show, I came oh, across. Well, well, you don't, don't, don't try and make out you do any research for the show. <laughs> okay. Negatory, right. negatory, All everybody. Right. I was cruising the net looking for some sexy yeah, photos exactly. of Rob Thomas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In boxer shorts, yeah. I came across Rob talking about one of the songwriters who inspires him. Remember Steve Earle? I he, love Steve Earle. Well, here's a great quote from Steve Earle that Rob mentions. He said, Steve said, writing a song is really hard and that's why the world is full of players. Well, it's pretty appropriate for our show because I think what we endeavour to do is we try and give people new information to make themselves better as opposed to just being like a player mm. because the, the majority of people won't take a chance, won't get out of their comfort zone, won't try something new, will never write We'll never try and do a piece of music that's original, never mm. start a business, get into a side hustle. And it's probably pretty appropriate for our show, I think, is that we endeavour people to be a writer or an artist, have a crack and do something new. And that's where your mojo is. Your mojo always comes when you find something new to do. Mm. The people who lose their mojo are the ones who are doing the same old, same old, stuck in status quo, and they're a player like everybody else around them. So um, I reckon that we should play probably one of our favouritest songs of all time that we used to play at Triple M back in the day. I reckon Steve Earle, Copperhead Road, should take us out. Mm, turn it up.
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.